You're listening to Good Conversation with the Reverend Dr. John Gillibrand. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this first in the series of the Good Conversation podcast. Our guest today is Professor John Swinton from Aberdeen University. I'll ask him to introduce himself in a few moments. But first of all, let's recollect what the Good Conversation podcast is all about. There's a deep conviction here that church leaders and theologians have to ask and be prepared to answer the most robust and difficult questions. I've asked John along here today because I think he is well up for that. Uh, But I have to ask you, John, before we start, are you up for that? Are you up for taking part in the Good Conversation podcast? I'd be delighted to take part. Whether I'm up for it, I'll leave the listeners to work out over time. (laughs) We will see. We will see. But I've every confidence. Otherwise, you would not be here. That's right. So, John, could I ask you just briefly, as I've already said, you're a professor in Aberdeen University. What exactly is your current role? And once you've described it, could you tell me out of 10 how much you love your job? Yes, I'll try and answer all of these things. So I'm Professor in Practical Theology at the University of Aberdeen here in snowy Scotland just now. I've been here for 20 something years, so I've been more time here than I have been in most other places in my life. I'm also a Master of Christ College, which sounds a bit grand, but it basically means I'm responsible for uh, Church of Scotland ministers who are training to be Church of Scotland ministers. Uh, And so I'm responsible for their pastoral care and some of their spiritual formation. So between all of these things, I'm kept quite busy and I'm happy. And in in terms of a scale of one to 10 in my job, no job is perfect, but I'd say probably nine. Professor of Practical Theology. Surely theology is the most impractical subject you could imagine. What on earth is this practical theology of which you speak? It's a great question, because I, I have a, a colleague who is a, a biblical scholar, and he prides himself in, in saying everyone he's an impractical theologian, um, which to me seems to like a, a, a kind of confusion in terms. Practical theology looks at the interface between what the church does and what the church claims to do through its theological practice. And so it begins to explore various aspects of church life and society life, and reflects theologically on them, which basically means brings what we know about God and what we know about human beings to a particular situation in order that we can understand uh, God more fully and also understand human beings more fully. So it assumes that theology is not something that's just done within a university setting by clever people who sit around and think about things, important as that is. I don't mean that derogatorily at all. It assumes that God's at work in the world. Uh, and that one of the tasks of the theologian is to find out and look at uh, very carefully at what God is doing in the world and to be able to articulate that in ways that um, the academy can understand, but also the ways which the church and people who seek to follow that God can work through and live through. So practical theology works at that interface there between uh, our theology as an academic discipline and the practice of being with the living God. I think you've described quite beautifully the 
relationship between um, academic theology, if we can call it that, and the church. Yeah. Uh, there are others who would question that relationship. What would you say to people who would say, let's concentrate on our spiritual life. We have no interest in this academic stuff. There's two things I would say. I mean, one that I draw people's attention to the way that Jesus articulates uh, what it means to love, you know, loving with your, your heart, your soul and your mind, that the intellectual pursuit of truth and knowledge about God is an important aspect of our life. It's not the only aspect, but it's, but it's an important aspect. You know, because I, mean, I think if I was uh, about to have brain surgery and this, this, the surgeon came along and said to me, listen, I'm not too keen on the theoretical stuff, like, but I'd really like to get into your brain. Yeah. I might be a bit concerned. Like, and I don't think... A bit, a bit concerned. <laughs> As I left the room very quickly. And so, and I, I don't think, I think we, we should have that same kind of intellectual rigor when it comes to trying to work out what the things of, of God are. Now, that's not to say that everybody has to do that. The body of Christ says we all have different gifts and we all come together with the same purposes to love God and to love one another. So that, that it's not necessarily we all have to suddenly intellectualize everything. But getting that balance between uh, our minds and our bodies and our soul is important in life, but it's also important when we come to know things about God. Now, one of the things about what we're talking about here is that you function both within a church setting and you've talked about your role in the formation of Church of Scotland uh, ministers and within the academic setting. I'm sure you've preached more than a few sermons over the years. I have. Now, this is a question. Of all those sermons, and like everybody, we don't always remember our own sermons, but of the sermons you've preached, which is your favourite one? And which is the one that you'd have preferred not to have preached looking back? Well, they're kind of, that's, that's a great question. They're kind of similar. They both, they both relate to the same sermon. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> and that, that's it's a funny thing, because this particular sermon I'm thinking about just now was on forgiveness. And so I was looking at Kerry Ten Boom's experiences during the war and which she, she was faced with uh, one of the people who was responsible for her family's death. And I went on to talk about forgiveness and the importance of forgiveness um, and forgiveness as a journey. That you, you know, the best sometimes you can do is to step on that road. But as soon as you step on that road, at a minimum, you stop harboring hatred. And so you can begin to move on. But the essence of the sermon was that forgiveness is something that God has given to us. Um, but it's actually a really, really difficult thing. And, and one of the most difficult things that Jesus says is to, to forgive people, 77, because many of us simply can't do that. And I was talking about that, that, the idea that actually sometimes forgiveness is a way of overcoming your own hatred and, your own, and damaging yourself in that way. And that at least if you can step onto the road of forgiveness, which might simply be recognizing that Jesus might be onto something, even if you never get along to the end of that journey, uh, then forgiveness is a beginning point for transformation. And so I preached that sermon twice. At the end of it, at the end of the first sermon, uh, uh, people were coming up, and they, uh, as people do, saying this is really nice. Um, but one guy came up to me at the end of it and says, "You know, I've never liked you, uh, and but I was really moved by your sermon, uh, and so I, I need you to forgive me." 
<laughs> so fair <laughs> enough. Then tell me what, what this, the backstory was. And then the second time I preached it, uh, uh, it's, it's the same sermon, more or less, uh, same response. And then this woman who I'd known for years came up and said, you know, I've never liked you. <laughs> 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 I'm, not, not, I'm not sure exactly what, what it was, but, uh, uh, but I've, I mean, your, your sermon really touched my heart uh, and I want to ask forgiveness. And so at one level, clearly forgiveness is something that's really important to people. And even your kind of enemies that you don't know you have can be moved by being, bringing the, uh, forgiveness to attention. But the downside was that both of these people never told me what it was that they did, really didn't like. So, so I have to make it up myself and project it, it was, myself. It, it, was a it was a revelatory moment, but not that revelatory by the sound of it. Yes. <laughs> Please, I, I assume that, I always assume everybody likes me and clearly that's not, that's not going to be the case. We've known each other for some time and you are, as far as I know, well liked. <laughs> but, uh... Not by everybody, obviously. Oh, clearly not. Now, let, let's uh, move, move backwards from this a little. And we've talked about, as I say, that dual role, sitting both within the church and within academic life. But could you tell me a little bit about your life story? I'm not looking for the whole of the CV, which I know, I know is distinguished, otherwise you wouldn't be a professor. But just, just what, what is it in your life story that brought you to where you are now? When I look back over the past 30, 40 years, or however long it would be, where I've ended up, I couldn't have imagined, really. Mm. So I began my, my life journey as a, in a rather unusual place as a scientist. I was an assistant scientific officer at the Marine Laboratories in Aberdeen. As far, removed, my... from as far removed from practical theology as it's possible to imagine. <laughs> it isn't. I spent most of my life in a dark basement measuring... Uh, pictures of lobsters wow. <laughs> to see whether they've been affected by mercury. Anyway, that didn't last very long. Uh, and then I drove a, a, a van for a while. And that was probably one of the best jobs I ever had because you go to work, you do your job when you come home and you don't have to take anything home where you just have to do your job. And so I actually really enjoyed that. And then I got to see a lot of the countryside around here. So it was an important part of my formation in some ways. But I ended up uh, becoming a nurse. So I, I, was, I became a psychiatric nurse way back in 1975 or 1976, whatever it was. I, I nursed in the area of mental health and then I retrained and worked in the area of, of intellectual disability or learning disability, as, as we call it in the UK. And I worked as a nurse for 16 years and I really enjoyed it. Uh, and that was really, that was my place of formation because all of that time, all my early years as a professional nurse, I was with people who understood and saw the world differently, people who had mental health challenges, people who had intellectual disabilities. Uh, and that was a great place to just realize um, that there's more than one way to look at the world. And the fact that somebody is classified as being disabled or classified as having a mental health challenge doesn't mean to say they don't have deep insights into the way the world is and the things that uh, we should, all of us should know. So I learned a lot about that. But then in the early, uh, well, 1989, I decided to move on from nursing into theology. Now, my first intention was to be a, a hospital chaplain, because my, my father was a hospital chaplain. And uh, it's not to suggest that 
chaplaincy runs in your blood, but it, 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 it was clearly something that had been... Uh, I, I didn't know these posts could be inherited. <laughs> well, precisely, it's right. But it's funny, the first day I was at university, in my first class in practical theology, I knew that I wanted to teach practical theology. I, 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 don't, I haven't had many, many revelatory moments in my life, but that was one, which is odd because the lecture was basically old style practical theology. And I remember it very well. The essence of the lecture was don't throw stones at coffins because it upsets relatives. In other words, if you're at the graveside, make sure there's no stones in the earth that you throw into the grave because otherwise it makes a noise and people get upset. And practical theology back then was very much like that. It was like handy household hints for ministers. It's very different now. But for whatever reason, that was my aha moment. And so from then on in, I, I finished my degree, I did my PhD, and I ended up, well, I had a job in Glasgow for a year, and I ended up back in Aberdeen. And I've been there since, oh goodness me, 1997. How long have you been a professor? I've been a professor for about, around about 15 years, I think. Let's have a think about disability theology now, an interest that you and I both share for all kinds of uh, reasons. In 2013, your book won the Michael Ramsey Prize, did it not, for theological writing. Could you tell me the title of the book and just a little about what's in it? Yeah, the, the title of the book is called Dementia, and the subtitle is Living in the Memories of God. And it's really an exploration of how we can understand dementia by bringing together standard understandings from psychology and neurology with theology in a way that constructs a hopeful picture for a condition that very often people think is completely hopeless. And so the, the book itself focuses in and around issues of memory, for example, and it points out that what makes us human beings is not what we remember about ourselves or the stories that we tell about ourselves, but being remembered by God. And so we live in that sense in the memories of God. And when we forget things, God continues to remember. And I work out what that looks like in a theological framework, but also what pastoral practices emerge from that way of thinking about dementia, not as something that is a, a, a tragedy, but something that is also an opportunity. Yes, it contains suffering. Yes, it contains difficulties. But everybody, even in the midst of the most advanced dementia, has possibilities for the future. And so the book tries to draw out what that looks like. So let's go over to the churches now. Could I ask this question, and reflecting on the scene in Scotland and in uh, other parts of these islands, are the churches genuinely inclusive of people with disabilities or not? Well, I think it's probably not a yes or no question insofar as some congregations are very good and some congregations are not so good. Uh, and there's lots of different intervening reasons for that. And so I think that congregations in general have a, a, a sense that inclusion is important that you know we have laws and legislation that says that you can't exclude people with disabilities and same way you can't exclude people who are of color or people who are any other kind of minority groups so that's pretty well entrenched whether people act out effectively is another question but the question for me is whether or not when somebody when a, when a congregation decides to include 
people who are different for whatever reason, whether they do that in a spirit of belonging or whether they just do that in a spirit of the law. And so the, the law will get people in the door because you mean you, you have to have certain structures, you have to have certain ways of thinking to, to by, by lead them by the law. But you don't necessarily have to love people. And I think that for me, the problem very often for people living with disabilities is that they can have a place within a congregation to an extent, but it's whether or not that congregation uh, loves them and whether they, they genuinely belong to that conversation, that, uh, people, do people miss them when they're not there? Are they, do they have a valued role? And above it, most importantly, do people, are people considered to have a vocation? So in other words, you, you, you don't include somebody with a disability just because it's the, a right thing to do, or even because it's something that you may think is a, is a living thing to do. You do it for all, both of these reasons, but also because you know that that person has been called by God to do something or to be something within that congregation. And so those congregations, which I think incorporate people best, are people who have a sense of vocation, that the person is there not simply just to, to um, fill the quota of disabled people, or not simply just because it's a charitable thing to do, but because Jesus is something for them to do. And I think that's a really much more uh, interesting uh, dynamic in terms of inclusion than just the, the standard whether or not people are there or not. So it's the centrality of vocation, isn't it? Is what I'm hearing in what you're saying. So. I do yes. think so. I think, yeah. And I think when you think about disability in terms of dis discipleship and vocation, it raises a, a completely different set of questions than if you think about it in terms of charity and pastoral care, because everybody needs charity and pastoral care. But teasing out the vocation of somebody, for example, with advanced dementia or somebody with a profound intellectual disability takes a very creative and imaginative way of thinking about not only what people do, but what vocation is. And it's a question, is it not, uh, of thinking in any given situation what abundant life looks like? Would that, exactly. be a, would that be a fair comment? Yes, that is. And so when Jesus says to, he comes to bring life in all of its fullness, we tend to have a very culturally oriented idea of what that may be, which is probably a life of happiness or a life of, mm. of abundance in the way that culturally we think about that. But no, it, it means being able to live well in the midst of all the situations and experiences that you have within the body of Christ. So yeah, I, I, I think what you see is absolutely accurate. A slight, slight change as far as our subject's concerned now. Scotland, you've lived in Aberdeen for all those years. Can you can you tell me something about Aberdeen? What's it like to live in Aberdeen? Well, if you can imagine your vision of heaven, that's what Aberdeen is like. That <laughs> sounds very attractive to me. <laughs> it's, it's, a it's a lovely city, actually, because it's, it's on the North Sea. So it, it's on the coast. Um, and it, it looks across, well, depending on what part of the city where I am, I'm right in the edge of the city. So I'm kind of a, a mile and a half away from the sea but a few hundred yards away from the country and about two miles away from the city centre. So I get the best of all lives here. It's a good place, nice schools, nice people, uh, a lot of very vibrant churches. I can't imagine living anywhere else at the moment. So you're nine out of ten satisfied with your job and you couldn't imagine living anywhere else than Aberdeen. <laughs> yes, I mean, I sound happier than I am. But <laughs> <laughs> Thinking more generally about Scotland and where we are 
in Scotland at the moment. What are the challenges facing Scotland at the moment? What are the key challenges in the situation? I know that's a a very challenging question, but if you're up for it, I'd be very interested in your response. Well, I don't know is the answer because it depends. We're in a state of real uh, transition just now. So we have Brexit coming in and none of us at the moment really know what the longer term implications of Brexit will be for for Scotland or indeed for the United Kingdom. Uh, And then on top of that, of course, we have the pandemic, the the kind of fruits of which are really only going to we won't really know what the outcome of that is for, I think, months, a few months yet, or maybe even years yet. In terms of finances, in terms of mental health, and in terms of the way that the country is running or structures itself, it's very difficult to gauge that. So, I mean, I think that uh, psychologically, if you like, Scotland's in a good position. I think Scottish people have a good, solid sense of identity. I think one of the interesting things about the Brexit debate is it's, it's, it's helped people to think through what it means to be Scottish and what it means to be uh, a, a Scottish in a, in a new way in light of the new circumstances. I think it's, a, it's, an, it's an interesting time for the, the, the country, but it will depend almost completely on Brexit and the pandemic as to what, what it looks like in the foreseeable future. It sounds rather similar to our situation in Wales in that case (laughs) and in so many different uh, contexts as well. Now, as I probably mentioned to you at the beginning of this series, I was interviewed by Adrian Masters uh, from ITV Wales and he asked me some really tough questions, some really tough questions and I've uh, tempted to follow that as we've been talking today it's uh, there's no point in being bland is there it's better to better to go for the real issues um, but at the end he pulled a surprise on me by asking some quick fire questions and I'm going to do exactly the same thing to you now John what do you Thank prefer you. pop or classical music pop if so which song which song all? yes <laughs> I can't tell you, I'm sorry. But suffice to say that um, if I told you, nobody would ever take me seriously again. So I, I, can't, I can't answer that question. That's a fascinating, fascinating answer. Uh, it, it sounds as if it's going to take me a few more years of knowing you to find out the truth Possibly. of that one. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a song that you love very much, obviously. It is. And it's by an artist that has no credibility whatsoever. And so the proud part of me says, I'm not going to tell you. Which do you prefer, rugby or football? Football. Uh, What's your favourite team? Well, my favourite team is... uh, Yeah, that's a good question. It changes over time. I'm not going to allow you to dodge two questions one after the other. I was born in Liverpool. So, uh, although I was only there for three weeks, but I've always been a, a fan of, of Liverpool. So probably Liverpool. Sweets or chocolate? Chocolate. Which kind? Cadbury's dairy milk. We don't, I should say to our listeners, receive any financial support from Cadbury's dairy milk uh, for no. our podcast, but uh, <laughs> thank you. I, this, this was a really difficult question for me to ask because I've been on a lockdown diet and have lost 
almost two stones now. So uh, oh, I haven't touched chocolate for a long time. Uh, um, what wine, beer, or spirits, or none? Uh, oh, wine. Wine. White or red? Red. Or pink? <laughs> no, not pink. Red. Red. Now, um, you refuse to answer the question as to your favourite pop song. Uh, so, what's your favourite book? You're not allowed to mention any of the ones that you've written yourself. And I know that your bibliography is a quite long one by now. My favourite book? Uh... Apart from the Bible, presumably. Uh, we're leaving out the Bible and Shakespeare. Good question. Um, it's that book that's really changed you as a result of reading it. Yeah, probably um, Miroslav Volf's Exclusion and Embrace, simply because it, it gives a, a, a wonderful picture on that overcoming hatred and finding the possibility of forgiveness and reconciliation, even in the midst of horrendous evil. So I, that's probably one that, that has uh, impacted me significantly. Which goes back to the sermon that you mentioned as well. I, it you know, does. It goes, does. goes back to that theme, doesn't it? Yeah. It does. um, what is, if, if that's your favourite book overall, what's your favourite novel? My favourite novel. Um, blame I don't. I don't know if I have one really. I, I tend to. I tend to. I tend to read a lot of detective stories. And Name so me I, a detective story that you recommend to somebody else. I'm, I'm determined you shouldn't dodge a second question. We're almost finished. Any of, any of the any of the Rebus books by Ian Rankin, I, I like. That would be a good fit, wouldn't it? Yes. I shall take that recommendation. It's time for me to start on that one, I think. So thank you. Um, and uh, la last question in the quick fire round. Well, it would be quick fire if you weren't pausing so much before answering the questions. I, I, think, I think it's what a theologian would call theologically reflective practice here. Exactly. A lot of reflection here. Uh, but, but what is your favourite movie? My favourite movie? Um, I like uh, I like the Star Wars films. I, 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 I'm not a fan, but I like them. So they're probably one of them sits in that, under that category. You enjoy. You enjoy. That's it. That's it. Yes. That's fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much, uh, John, for everything that you've shared with us uh, today and for making time to take part in the Good Conversation podcast. Um I'm going to ask one last question. Uh, you and I are of a generation where we've been around and listening to what people say over many decades now. And you talked about when your career started. Uh, but we both heard people saying um, in our different contexts that the mainstream churches are going downhill, that we're living in an increasingly uh, secular age. And there are people who say that the mainstream churches are in terminal decline. So looking at Scotland or perhaps at the more general scene in 20 years time, what do you think it'll all be like? Just quickly. Well, I think a I mean, quick glimpse of the future. I mean, 
not all churches are, are struggling in the way that some churches, charismatic evangelical churches seem to be doing very well. And if you look across the world, the church is, 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 is flourishing in many, many countries. It tends to be those of us within a particular type of Western way of thinking that struggle with it. I would be optimistic because I'm optimistic about uh, what God can do in most situations. So I think some th aspects of the church shall die off, but I think and look forward to that which is uh, emerging and which will emerge over the next few years. So can I call you John Hopeful Swinton? Very hopeful. Thank you very much indeed, John. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And I do believe that we've had a really good conversation in this series of The Good Conversation uh, podcasts. Thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to Good Conversation with the Reverend Dr. John Gillibrand. This podcast was produced by Phil John with music by Dan Greensmith.